0: Now, today we come to the book of Job, and this book is a very remarkable book, by the way. It is the first of the poetical books, and in this series now that we're coming to, you have Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. Now, you will find in this book here, as well as these other poetic books, that the form of the content does not imply imaginative or capricious content. Neither does the term poetical here mean that it's rhythmic. Hebrew poetry is achieved by repeating an idea, which is called parallelism. Now, the dialogue in the book of Job was in poetry in that day. You've ever read the Iliad and Odyssey of Homer? You know they are examples in secular literature because that was a common practice in that day. Now, this is a remarkable book. There are some very interesting things to be said about it. Who is the author? Well, it's been suggested that Moses is the author and others, Ezra is the author Uh, others Solomon, uh, others Job, and Elihu, who's mentioned in this book. He's one of the miserable comforters of Job, by the way. And there are those that believe that Elihu is the more likely one of the two. And I'm not sure but what that may be true. If you note Job 32, verse 16, This man says, "...when I had waited, for they spake not, but stood still and answered no more, I said, I will answer also on my part." And we find this man now speaking out, and you'd notice that he uses the term, I, here a great deal, which would indicate he may be the writer. Then there is something else about this book that's interesting. We do not know the author, we do not know the period that Job lived, and we do not know where he lived. Now, I know we'll come in just a few moments, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Well, we're introduced to him, and we're going to learn a great deal about him, but honestly, the land of Uz is not known. I do not know that we could fix any particular spot. I'll be talking about that when we get to it. But the time and the place that are so essential to any other book or any other literature is not here. We do not have the time. We do not have the place. And we can suggest certain things... And we're going to do that. I would suggest that it comes from the time of the patriarchs, the length of Job's life span. He lived, you know, quite a long time, and that would indicate that this man lived in that particular time. We're told in the very end of the book, chapter forty two, verse sixteen, after this lived Job a hundred and forty years and saw his sons and sons' sons even four generations. That would place him back in that period. And then in this book, we find that Job acted as the high priest in his family. And there's no mention here of the children of Israel, so evidently it took place before they came into existence. And then Eliphaz here was a descendant, from Esau's eldest son, and you find that in Genesis thirty six ten. There are those that like to place it back at the time of Jacob, and that could well be. Now, the important thing about the book of Job is this. There are many problems that are raised and settled by this book. This book is a great philosophical work, and one of the things is to determine why the righteous suffer. Or let me put it like this, it gives one of the reasons why the righteous suffer. I do not believe this is the primary teaching, though a great many take that position. And then it was written to refute the slander of Satan against mankind. It was also written to reveal Job to himself. It was written to teach patience. Remember, James tells us, you've heard of the patience of Job. And I'll be honest with you, I've read the book several times, and I haven't heard of the patience of Job. It's difficult to see how this man was patient. And we will, however, see when we get to the end of the book. And then I think the primary purpose of the book of Job, and we'll see this when we get to it. So if you want to disagree right now, hold on to this before you come to a conclusion. The primary purpose of the book of Job is to teach repentance. Now, you see, when men today write a book on repentance, they always pick a character that's had a sinful beginning. For instance, that was Manasseh, the most ungodly king. We have seen him back in the historical books of the Old Testament. And he repented, may I say to you, that's as we think of it. And then there was Saul of Tarsus, the greatest enemy that the Lord Jesus Christ ever had. He repented. There was St. Francis of Assisi, a debauched nobleman of his day, and he repented. Then there was Jerry McCauley, the drunken bum on Skid Row in New York City, and he repented. Now, God didn't pick a man like that. He could have. But God picked the best man that probably ever lived in the time of the Old Testament, and he chose this best man and showed that he needed to repent. And at the end of the book, Job says, "...I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. But now mine eyes seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes." And this ought to teach every believer, every one that's listening to me today, it ought to tell us one thing. No matter how good we think we are, in God's sight we'd see ourselves, even our righteousness, as filthy rags. We need to repent. Now, this is a great philosophical work. Tennyson said of this book that it's the greatest poem, whether of ancient or modern literature. And Carlyle, the great Scotch philosopher, said, I call that, he's speaking down of the book of Job, one of the grandest ever written with pen. And Martin Luther said, more magnificent and sublime than any other book of Scripture. Dr. Morehead put it like this, the book of Job is one of the noblest poems in existence. Now, this has been a neglected book. And it's been, I think, misunderstood. Now, a few years ago, there was a play on Broadway called J.B., and Archibald MacLeish wrote that, and he was very candid. He attempted to make an analogy between the book of Job and modern man, and very candidly, I think he missed it, although he mentioned the human predicament today, and he knew about that. But I don't think he quite knew about Job and the great purpose back of that. Now, he speaks of the despair and also the hope in that book of modern man. But may I say to you that I think beyond that, the analogy breaks down. And I'll tell you why. The book of Job reveals a man who's very conscious of God, who at first did not see himself in the light of God's presence, and he could find nothing wrong with himself, although he certainly was very egotistical about his own righteousness, and he maintained it in the face of the ones that were round about him. He said that he felt that before God, that he was all right. In fact, he wanted to come into the presence of God and defend himself. And when he did, he found out he needed to repent. Now, that's not modern man by any means. The psychiatrist today has told modern man that the thing that's wrong with him is that his mother didn't love him like she should have. The problem is that his mother didn't paddle him as much as she should have that. I think it's what's wrong with this generation now that's causing all of the trouble. But the problem is that the mother and the father neglected the boy and the girl. And that is the reason. Well, now I recognize today that a great deal of the problem is because of that. But you see, we can't blame this on others. We are trying to put the blame for our deficiencies and our inability and our sin, we're trying to put it on somebody else. And we're not putting it on the right one. Now, there is one who bore all of our sin. But until you and I recognize that we're sinners and come to him, my friend, we're putting the blame on the wrong one. And I think it's pretty low for any man to put the blame actually upon his mother. That's a terrible thing for a person to do. So that we find today that many do that. Now we have here that problem. And modern man has a real predicament. And he's in great despair. But his problem is... He's blaming his sin on others, and he has no place to go to find that comfort. Because modern man today, with all of his materialism and secularism, and he's put around him every gadget you can think of. I was in the home of a very wonderful man. He's a Christian, but I'm amazed at the gadgets that he's got. In his bed, right at the headboard, There must be 25 different buttons he can punch. And he can have lights come on all over the place. He can have a bell ring. He can have doors open and doors closed and lights come on on the outside. Never seen anything like it. Now, that to him is a great security. And today, many of us have that. In other words, we have our blanket. You and I, we snuggle up to it. Why? Because modern man doesn't have a God to go to, doesn't have a Savior to go to. Now, Job did. And the fact of the matter is, God's putting him through the mill. That will finally bring him into the presence of God. And today, modern man is being put through the mill, even with all of this affluent society, with all these modern gadgets, with all the comforts of life, modern man is absolutely adrift on a piece of driftwood out in the midst of a vast ocean, and he doesn't know where he is, and he doesn't know where he's going. And that's rather frightening, by the way. Now, actually, there is beginning to come into the thinking of a great many folks that out yonder somewhere there is someone. And they've got a modern song Put your hand in the hand of the man of Galilee. Well, that's getting pretty close to it, by the way, but even that, I think, is missing it because you've got to come to him as a sinner and you have to accept him first as your Savior. And today I hear a great deal about let's make our commitment. What is your commitment, by the way? If you think that it's a matter of just coming to him and making him, as I hear it, Make him your Lord and master. He said there are going to be many that are going to say, Lord, Lord, in that day. You don't make him Lord and master at first. You make him save you. He died for you. And if you don't begin with him there at the cross, you're not going to begin with him anywhere. Now, that is the problem of modern man. That was not the problem of Job at all. Job could not understand why God permitted him to go through the mill as he did, and he did not recognize that he needed to repent, and he's very conscious of the presence of God all the way through. Modern man does not have that consciousness at all. Now, I've spent a little time with that because I consider that rather important, by the way, and we are going to see the book of Job from that viewpoint. Now, we're dealing here, friends, with profound principles and great divine truth. Now, we have, and I'd like to give you the outline of the book as I have outlined it, very simple. You have here a great drama, and it opens in the first two chapters, and it's prose. I'll come back to that. Then you have the dialogue, that's portrait from chapter 2, verse 11, through the last chapter, verse 6. And we'll see that. We'll see that Job there has this tremendous dialogue with his friends. And then we have finally God breaking upon the scene. Now the epilogue, and that's prose, chapter 42, verse 7, through the rest of the book. Now let's come back to the drama. We have here five scenes. Scene one is in the land of us, and Job's in prosperity and serenity. That's the first five verses. Then in scene two, we switch to heaven, and we hear Satan's slander of God and Job. And God permits it, verse 6 through 12. And then scene three, the land of us again, and we see the trouble begins to come to Job. The loss of his children and his wealth in verses 13 through 22. Then the scene goes back to heaven in chapter 2, and in the first six verses, it's God and Satan again. Then finally we come back to the earth in verse 7 of chapter 2 through 10, and you have the land of us, and we see Job's loss of health and also of his wife's sympathy. Now, this is a tremendous book, by the way. And we're going to see what actually Satan is doing to this man, stripping him of everything so he will deny God. And actually, as even his wife suggested, curse God and die. Now, the scene opens, and I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Now, friends, this is a very wonderful scene that we have here. And again, the land of Uz. Well, it could be today, actually, California. It could be New York State. It could be any one of the 50 states. It could be any place on this earth. I have a suggestion to make here, by the way, where it might be somewhere in the Middle East. And beyond that, actually, nothing specific is known. Josephus gives us a glimmer of light on the location of us. According to Genesis 22, 21, The firstborn of Nahor, that is, Abraham's brother, was us. And we are told that he's the founder of the ancient city of Damascus. In fact, the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. And I recognize there are other cities make that claim also. Now, Job lived somewhere in the Syrian desert, where later the Lord sent Paul the apostle to get some postgraduate studies also. And my land of us and your land of us may be a different place geographically, but there's certain lessons God wants us to learn. Now, we are told that the man's name was Job and that this man actually was perfect. Now, what does it mean that he was perfect? Well, it means this. He was perfect in his relation to God in the sense that he had offered the sacrifices and it was the burnt offerings in that day for his sons. We find that later on here in verse 5. And this man feared God. He has a high and holy concept of God and as a result, he hates evil. He's a little different than modern man. And... He's a very wealthy man, as we're going to see. And let's get acquainted with him. We're told here, verse 2, "...there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters." He had a very wonderful family, you see. And these ten children, they just lived in luxury and ease. Listen to this. "...his substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels." "...and 500 yoke of oxen." Now, those camels were very important for several reasons. Actually, camel's milk was a luxury. And we're told he had 500 she-asses. Why did he have all of those? Well, he not only was running a great trucking business, that is, transportation, but he used these camels and the she-asses for their milk. It was considered a delicacy in that day. And that's one delicacy. I'm willing to miss, by the way. Now, this man here was living, actually, in the lap of luxury. And we're told he had a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Now, that tells us something about him. Very wealthy man. He was the Howard Hughes, the John D. Rockefeller, the Henry Ford of that day, and the oil man of Texas all rolled into one. He's a wealthy man of that day. Now we are told his sons went and feasted in their houses. Every one his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now, they were living in the lap of luxury. They certainly had it easy, by the way. But now notice, in all of the midst of plenty and ease, there was a fear in the heart of Job. Verse 5, It was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now, the thing that interests me is, He didn't feel like he needed an offering. He felt like he was right with God. But he felt like that maybe these sons and daughters weren't as close to God as they should be, so he offered sacrifices for them. He's the high priest in his own family. Now, this is quite a remarkable picture that we have drawn here for us. Now, this is scene one, and it's a gorgeous scene. Of a wealthy man living in the lap of luxury and plenty. My, everything he had in abundance. But he had a fear in his heart, a fear that a great many folk have today about his sons and his daughters. And he recognized he couldn't cope with that problem himself. So he went to God. My friend, today there's many a parent that is distracted and is distracted because they've got a son or daughter that's left home and gotten into trouble, may be on drugs today, and they have never themselves been able to go to God as this man did. And as a result, I tell you, they found out that there's some problems they can't solve. And Job now recognizes that. Now, that scene ends, and our next scene opens in heaven. And what a scene, and this is something Job was totally unaware of, and those that are in the book of Job, they did not know this took place at all. And this enables us to understand and interpret some of the things that happen to God's people today. I don't say it's the total explanation, but it's part of it. Now, will you notice, verse 6, "...now there was a day..." "...when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them." Now, this is a scene in heaven. And there comes before God the sons of God, his created intelligences. I must confess I know very little about them. I think they're numberless as numberless as the sand on the seashore, which means you and I can't count them. And they're a vast company. These are not human beings. They do not belong to our race. But these are God's created intelligences, and they're responsible creatures. They have to come and report to God as a matter of regular routine. And then... That's something I suppose we would expect that. But now there's something here that's rather shocking. We're told, and Satan came also among them. That's shocking. Verse 7, And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And by the way, he has to make a report also. That is amazing, isn't it? And he says this, I guess he came from hell. No, he didn't. Friends, hell hadn't been opened up yet. No one's in hell today. It's going to be, and it's not opened up, actually, until after the millennium takes place on this earth. There'll be the judgment of the great white throne. And hell is a place prepared for the devil and his angels, but they're not there yet. Fact of the matter is, he has as much access to this earth as you and I have, more so. We're told that he came and made this report. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Now, this man had access to this earth, so much so that apparently it was his domain. Instead of being in hell, he's on this earth. And he goes up and down, east, west, north, and south. And he is called that, He's called the God of this world. And he's called also the Prince of the power of the air. And we're told that he goes up and down seeking whom he may devour, so that he has great access and freedom in this earth today. And we're warned. Peter warned us and said, Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. My friend, this is a warning, and this is exactly what the book of Job says. Satan himself said he's got freedom to go up and down this earth. And he offered the Lord Jesus the kingdoms of this earth, and the Lord Jesus never said to him, you don't have them to offer. He just turned them down. And apparently... He has a certain amount of freedom. And when you look at this earth today, does look like it, he's running things, does it not? God is overruling, but it looks like that he is running things on this earth today. And we're told that this is a world that you and I live in that actually is controlled by Satan. And he has to be overcome. And we can only overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. Now, this is quite a revelation, is it not? And contrary to modern thinking. Now, notice verse 8. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and is evil? Now, God made a good report of Job. He said he's outstanding, And evidently, Satan had been trying to get at him. And the reason that I think I know that, Satan answered the Lord and said, verse 9, Doth Job fear God for naught? Now, apparently, this creature had been trying to get through to Job. And he made a discovery that he couldn't get through to him because there was a hedge about him. And Satan then casts a slur on mankind. I think he despises mankind. And he suggests that Job is really a time-server. Listen to this. Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Verse 10. Hast not thou made a hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. You have put a hedge around him, and I can't touch him. And I believe that there's a hedge about every believer today. And I don't think Satan can touch you unless God permits it. And if God permits it, it'll be for a purpose. That's what this book teaches, by the way. Now, the thing is, he casts now this slur upon him. He says, verse 11, But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he'll curse thee to the face. My, he has no use for you or me. He says, you and I are time servants. And if God took down that head and took everything from us, we'd curse God. A lot of them would, by the way. No question about that. All you have to listen to it. Here in Southern California, keep your ears open. And I hear God curse nearly every day. I went by where there was a building being erected. And one of the foremen there was attempting to make some sort of adjustment in something. And he didn't. The thing fell. And my, he began to curse God. (laughs) I tell you, I don't know. He may go to church on Sunday, carry a big Bible. I don't know. I do know this. He cursed God. And you hear that constantly today. Men are not rightly related to God, friends, anything but. But this man, Job, had a hedge around him, and Satan couldn't touch him. And Satan said, I'd like to get to him. And he hates mankind. Why in the world anybody wants to serve Satan? I don't know. Because he despises us. And I wouldn't want a master like that. I want a master that will love me and be sympathetic to me. And that's the kind of a master I have. Now, will you notice, we're told here, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now, I tell you, sometimes God permits Satan to take away from us these things we lean on. I know that when our little blanket is taken away from us, my, many of us feel so helpless, incapable, and lost in the world. And many of us cry out to God. Now, notice, God's going to permit Satan to take from this man his possessions. And believe me, Satan would destroy us if he could. Now, verse 13, the scene changes. Now, the scene in heaven concludes, and now we have a scene down on earth. And notice this. that was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. They were just having a high old time, friends. They were going around first from one brother's house to another. And there was a banquet every day. They were really living it up living in the lap of luxury, taking it easy. And then what happens? Well, there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Well, here Job has been having it nicely. He didn't know that he had enemies like this. And the Sabaeans come in and they slay all of his cattle here. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen of heaven, and it's burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am alone to tell the story. It's called the fire of God. It's interesting that today, my kid, an insurance man, a friend of mine, he has in his policy, you know, that if your house burns up or if it's destroyed by an act of God, we always blame God if something is destroyed. And in that day, they were saying that, the fire of God fell. But who did it? Well, Satan did it. And I don't know why. Why don't they say in the insurance policy, if Satan gets through to me, if God permits it, and Satan gets through to me and burns up my house. That's a, another approach, you see. And probably be more accurate. And this is what happened. And we're told here, while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, the Chaldeans made out three bands, fell upon the camels, and carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only escaped, alone to tell thee. Now, you talk about the crash of the stock market. This is real stock, and they're all gone. Everything's wiped out. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, I came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young man, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now, here's a tragedy beyond tragedies. This is a terrible tragedy. Now, all of his children are slain. And a Texas tornado hit the house of the eldest brother. And they're all slain. Now, what are you going to do in a case like this? Well, now I want you to notice what Job does. Then Job arose, ran his mantle, shaved his head, fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Notice this man. And listen to him now. Here's his testimony. And he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. You know, he had a viewpoint of life and a philosophy of life that Christians need today toward material things. And that is this. You and I came into this world with nothing. We were naked as a jaybird when we came into this world. And friends, we're going to leave the world the same way. What was the old bromide? There are no pockets in a shroud. You can't take anything with you. Years ago, when one of the Vanderbilt's died, all the relatives were standing outside the door, maybe it was the Astors, I don't know, some wealthy family, and they were waiting for the lawyer to come out. So when he came out, why, he announced to all the relatives that the patriarch had died. And immediately, one of the relatives, one of the more greedy ones, he said, how much did he leave? And the lawyer said, he left it all. (laughs) He didn't take anything with him. That's the way you're coming into the world. That's the way you're going out, friends. I don't care how many deeds you have, and I don't care how strong your safety deposit box is, and I don't care, my friend, what you accumulate and how much insurance you have. When you go, you are going just like you came into the world. So it's very important to have a philosophy of life that you may be living today in a $150,000 home or you may be living in a hovel. You today may have a big bank account, or you may not have any bank account at all. You may today have a safety deposit box filled with stocks and bonds, or you may not even have a safety deposit box. Doesn't make any difference who you are. You're going to leave the same way you came into this world. So whatever you've got, you're a steward of it. Really, it's not yours, is it? When you look at it in the final analysis. And Job, my, this man, he falls down here, and he worships God. Oh, you ran his manly, shaved his head, and you could have heard this man weeping a half a mile away. He's lost everything, and he's lost his sons and his daughters. But listen to him. He says, the Lord gave, and whatever you got, God gave it to you, and may I say to you, if he took it away, then he took it away. And he's going to hold you responsible and me responsible, how we use things. That's the reason that we saw when we went Second Corinthians, Paul called us all stewards. We're stewards. And a steward handles what belongs to somebody else. And God's going to ask you, how do I use all of his material things? Everything down here is his. you're just using them, and when you leave, you won't be taking them with you. So it's how you use what you got down here, and this man says this, and we're told in all this job's sin not, not charge God foolishly. Now this man didn't lose his faith, this man still is holding on to God, and now the sin is in heaven. And we come to chapter 2. Now, will you notice this? Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. They all have to report to God. You and I are going to report someday. And again, you remember we looked at the judgment seat of Christ. And we are going to report on our stewardship down here. That's where Christians come. That's not the great white throne judgment. And... We're going to give an account, and here are the creatures of God coming. They have to make a report. Well, he's God, friends. You're not God, and you're not operating free today. I hear so much about, we want liberty. How much liberty do you have? A grasshopper can jump higher, and you can jump according to his size. If you could jump like a grasshopper, you could jump over the tallest building that's in the world today, but you can't do it. What about your liberties, your freedom that you talk about today? May I say to you, you're a creature, a God. You're going to have to answer to him. And here they're all turning in their report. And even Satan had to come. He's not beyond. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, from whence comest thou? He has to report. God already knew, but he's got to tell the Lord. And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in, I've been down in my bailiwick. I'm running that place down there now. And I think he's still running it. Looks like it when I look about me today. Verse 3, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God.' and cheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him, to destroy him without cause. Now, let's understand. What happened to Job happened without a cause. Now, somebody is always saying, why does God let this happen to me? You know, it may be the Lord will say, well, there was no reason for it. (laughs) Actually, no reason. I wasn't whipping you. I wasn't punishing you. I just bringing you up a little higher. That's what he did with Job. But it was without a cause. And sometimes today we point our finger at a believer and say, Oh, God is whipping him. He may not. He may be testing him in a way. He can't test you and me because he couldn't trust us with the trouble. And very frankly, I'd never want to go through what Job went through. The Lord called Satan's particular attention to Job again. He said that this man still serves me. You said if I permitted you to take away from him everything, why, he'd turn his back on me, but he hasn't. He maintains his integrity. Now, verse 4 of chapter 2 of Job. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. You know, Satan is accurate about many of us, that there's a chink in our armor, that there is that Achilles heel that we've all got, there's that weakness, and when we get right down to the bare bones, why we all cave in. But, you know, God has said to us that he's not going to permit any temptation to come to us, yet we're going to be defeated completely. But he always will, with the temptation, make a way of escape for us. And he never lets us bear more than we can stand. We ought to recognize that. And I don't know who you are, where you are, how you are, but wherever you are, why, like, whatever you're going through, God is able to sustain you. And he's not going to let you bear more than you can bear. That's a great comfort. I do not know what a day will bring forth. It could be tragic beyond words, or it could be a delightful, wonderful day. But whichever it is, God says, I'm going to enable you to get through it. Your armor will stand up. I'll see to that. And that's a wonderful thing to know. And Satan is a liar. He's a liar here. He says that Job, he'll give anything for his soul. And so what happens? Satan says, But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he's in thine hand, but save his life. Now, scene five comes before us. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord, smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot, Under his crown, Satan leaves the presence of the Lord. Now he smites his body with sore boils. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Now this is the fifth scene that we have before us. This man, of course, is being tested in every department and every part of his life. And actually, what Satan is attempting to do is to break him down, you see. He's lost his finances. He's lost his family. And his physical body is now being attacked. And there's seemingly no human explanation for the trouble of Job. It's not a punishment for any sin. And it's senseless without a proper insight. And that's the reason God gives it to us, the beginning of the book, so we will understand. Now, what was happening to Job was for a lofty and worthy purpose. There was a good and sufficient reason in the eternal counsels of God. And when all the facts were in, all the facets considered, God has a purpose in that. It was discipline. You can say it's good for Job. Well, it's like the old chestnut. You remember the father whipping Little Willie and told him, says, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And Little Willie says, yes, but not in the same place. That's true here, by the way. It's good for Joe, but his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not ours. And we deliver our children from suffering. We prevent it. We give them everything we can afford to make life pleasant for them. And we spoil them. And we've got a spoiled generation today. A man said to me some time ago, I regret the day I gave my boy a car in college. I'm sorry I did it. Now, the day came when Job realized that there was something good was coming out of his experience. But he did not understand that at first at all. And it was good for Job. Now, it was for the glory of God. God's character has been impugned. Just think of that. I think the creatures in heaven, all these created intelligences, shuddered, the sons of God. When they heard this creature, Satan, cast that aspersion on God, you're not worthy to be loved. You have to pay him to love you, pay Job to love you and serve you. And that is, God had paid lovers. He had to bribe Job. And that God is not worth loving because of himself. Well, are we time service? God's good. God's merciful. We rejoice in his goodness. But when we're under trial, that's when we reveal our true metal. by the way. You know, the fires always burn out the drawers. And testing reveals what's genuine. And we're to be lights in the world. Light is for darkness. And he puts us in the darkness so the light will shine. Now, God never promised today any of his children that they'd have an easy time. On the contrary... He promised a rough time to come. That's something that's difficult, by the way, to express. There's no pain. There'll be no palm. There has to be the suffering. No contest, no struggle. Well, there'll be no scepter either. It's difficult for us to bow under the awful hand of Almighty God. The reason Paul could say, knowing the terror of the Lord We persuade men. Now, what kind of trouble did Job have? We're told that he had sore boils, and he scraped himself with a potsherd. That is a piece of broken pottery. You see, now the scene's going to move down. This last scene takes place on the dump heap outside of an oriental city, out where they dumped everything. Job was out there, picked up a piece of broken pottery, began to scrape himself. Must have been terrible. There's been a great deal of speculation among Christian doctors just what Job had. I'd like to pass on to you what a couple of English doctors several years ago in London said. Dr. Cedric Harvey, he suggested that Job, whose long-suffering affliction with a plague of boils that's described in the Old Testament was a victim of psychosomatic dermatitis. Now, there's a good one for you. And the Word of God says he had boils. And this doctor says, and he's a Christian doctor, he has psychosomatic dermatitis. Well, that just shows what becoming a doctor will do for you. And that's a skin disease induced by anxiety. Well, I don't think that that's the explanation myself. But the doctor couldn't diagnose it personally anyway, so I can contradict him. Then Dr. Harvey goes on to say that, and this was written up in a medical magazine, that a study of the Old Testament points up Job's insomnia, terrifying dreams, general state of anxiety, now generally accepted as symptoms of psychosomatic dermatitis. So when you have to scratch next time, you know what you got at least. It's psychosomatic dermatitis. Now... Some years ago, Dr. Charles J. Brim, a New York heart specialist, diagnosed Job's illness as pellagra, a vitamin deficiency disease. Now, you can take your choice. I hope you won't mind if I just say he had boils. And there are some of us think he could have had cancer, by the way. But now, whatever it is, this man is in real trouble. And I'm going to mention next time how Satan is moving in on this man and taking away from him all that any man in dignity rests upon in this life. Now, will you notice here, we are now introduced to his wife, and listen to her. Verse 9, "...then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity?" And Job did retain his integrity. Satan is beating at that. He's beating him down where he doesn't even want to call himself a man, you see. But he says, do you retain your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, that's a strange advice coming from a wife. Apparently, she wanted to be a widow. But she sees the suffering he's going through. And probably it's a tender suggestion. Doesn't sound that way. But this is a suggestion. And she says, curse God and die. Now, there have been those that take the position that Satan, you note, did not remove the wife of Job. Removed everything else. And why? Well, she wasn't any help to him. In fact, she might do the devil's bidding, you see. And he said unto her, thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. This man Job, up to this point now, has maintained his integrity. And now, actually, the book of Job begins at this point, here at verse 11. You have here now the integrity of the man attacked. And three friends, that is so-called three friends of Job, come to visit now and comfort him. And we should get introduced to them. Verse 11, and I'm reading it. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. Now, this, I think, is very important to see. First of all, Eliphaz the Temanite, we're going to get acquainted with all of them, by the way, he was a grandson of Esau, and that's in Genesis 36, verses 10 and 11. Now, Bildad, a shoe Yeshua was a son of Abraham. And that's in Genesis 25, 2, by the way. And that puts him, you see, at the time of the patriarchs. And then you have Zophar, a Naamathite, and Naamah was in northern Arabia. So now we can locate places, and that, of course, must put Job in that area somewhere. Now, these men come to mourn with Job. And since I'm going to say some very ugly things about his friends, I think probably we ought to say what we can say good about them. And they were friends until this happened. And this experience alienated them from Job. And the reason was they did not know God, nor did they know why God does certain things. And I think that's the reason that even today, many of us ought to be very careful about trying to explain why certain things happen to other people. We have no right to say, well, now God's let that happen to so and so for this reason. And then we generally tell the people the reason, and it isn't always a good one. Well, how do you know that's the reason? Now, these men were just as sure as we are today of why certain things happened but they were entirely wrong. But they were friends of Job. And you would say to me, well, how do you know? Well, listen to them. Verse 12, "...and when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent every one his mantle, sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground, seven days and seven nights. And none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Now, these men had heard that their friend Job was in trouble. They didn't dream that it was as severe as it was. These men, last time they'd seen him in a beautiful home, children around him, fine sons and daughters. They saw the wealth of Job spread out there upon the landscape. And now they come to visit their friend. They think at least that he must be in his home. He must still have a luxurious home, but he's out there at the dump heap of the town where they empty the garbage. And he's scraping himself with an old broken piece of pottery. And he doesn't have anything. It's all gone. Poor Job. And these friends, they were friends. They mourned. They wept. They howled. And for seven days, they sat down there and didn't say a word. They just sat with Job seven days and seven nights. I would say they're friends. That is, as far as they knew, they tried to be friendly to him. And they sat down with him seven days. Now, they mourn with him during this full week, but they were in no position to comfort Job. To begin with, they do not understand God. Second, they do not understand Job. And third, they do not understand themselves. You know, they merely just shake their heads in a knowing manner during the seven days of mourning. There they sit. They shake their heads. They're mourning for seven days. But that shaking their head, may I say to you, that wasn't very good. And what we have here is this. Job comes in under, finally, their critical eye. These men, they're brilliant men. They're philosophers, all of them. Men in that day did a great deal of thinking. No seven days days—they're thinking. And they all come to one conclusion. They come to it from a different direction. That Job must be an awful sinner for these things to happen to him and that God's punishing him and he just better get his life straightened out. Now, that's the way that they come. Now, what we have here, finally, Job can't stand it any longer. They're beginning to shake their head in a knowing way. And that smirk on their face, "Uh uh-huh. It finally comes out, brother Job. You've been living in sin, and you gave the impression that you were such a pious individual. And now we know that this has come to you because your sin is out at last. Well, Job can't take that. He could take everything else that happened to him, but he can't take this.